How's it going, guys? This is Dan Fagella here at the uh, at the Sentient Potential blog. I'm lucky enough to be joined today uh, by Mr. Ben Gertzel, who is a uh, touted AI expert in addition to the founder of the OpenCog Project. Ben, how's it going, brother? Pretty good. Pretty good. Cool, man. Yeah, I know I just got to catch up with you at the, the 2045 event out in New York. Um, and as, as I mentioned, a lot of the people we bring on board, um, one of the first things I always like to talk about is kind of how you got involved and invested in artificial intelligence, and particularly now, not just kind of the applications thereof, but the OpenCog project, transhumanism, and a lot of the things you're you're involved in now. I know you started in AI pretty early on, right? Well, I've been interested in AI and other science fictional technologies since I was a child in the, in the early 1970s, really. okay. And, you know, I, I went to college at Already, I was pretty hard about how making machines that would that would think in the same way people and and better. But at that time, I was also interested in a host of other whack technology projects, including life extension for humans, you know, building spaceships to travel to other stars and. How, how would you make time machines using the laws of, of physics and all sorts of that's cool all sorts of out there things in my mid to late twenties I decided if I was going to accomplish anything real I would have to focus a bit more and I began gravitating more and more toward AI by this point I was a mathematics professor yep. in university one of the things that appealed to me about AI was the idea that you didn't need any expensive or complicated hardware to do it. It seemed that you could do it just by programming. Just figure out the right thing to type on your computer, and <laughs> the computer could think. And that, that, that's an amazing idea. I mean, of course, making spaceships is awesome, but you need huge, like, nuclear reactors or something to power it. And yeah, you yeah. You can make a time machine by... Spinning a football-shaped star around, but again, that that there are significant engineering difficulties. There, yeah, right? especially for one guy. I mean, it's uh... yeah, and even for the biology of life extension, which is something I'm still working on in spare time, doing experiments on people. I mean, it's it's uh, either either dangerous or very slow and, and painstaking. And yeah, there's all sorts of legal restrictions. Yep. It, plus, it takes a long time. Let's say I have a pill that will make people live 200 years. How do you test it? Well, you got to... 200 years? Otherwise... you got to get the stopwatch out. Otherwise, you're looking at biomarkers of aging or testing with other organisms. Yeah. I mean, in a certain way, if AI can be achieved on plain old computers, in a certain way, that's, that's simpler logistically. It all comes down to knowing what to do. And that... At first, I wasn't sure that I knew what to do, and after doing more and more research into cognitive science, neuroscience, computer science, philosophy of mind in various areas, I originated what I felt was a workable design for a thinking machine, which is quite complicated, but seemed uh, in principle to be doable anyway. And I mean, the point I'm at now is I feel I have a design that could work 
fraction of the way through implementing it with the OpenCon project. We certainly would need a lot more money or a lot broader base of volunteer effort yeah. to get there to a human level thinking machine, but I think it's it's important to be making a start and actually doing work for the goal anyway instead of just talking about it. Big time, and I know you had mentioned obviously um, working in AI potentially would take less resources than you know spinning a football shaped star, for example. Um, but at the same time, the OpenCog project obviously does does uh, you know require a good amount of work, resources, etc. I know you're big on kind of collaborating, and you guys have a lot of volunteers. Um, go in, I guess, into a little bit of detail for the people watching as to sort of where the OpenCog project is now, what your guys' real mission is, and and you know, uh, yeah, I guess what your project, what your progress has been uh, up until now as well. The OpenCog project has two aspects, really. One aspect is that we're just building a toolkit of useful AI tools, which can then be deployed within a variety of vertical market-specific applications. So, you know, we've used OpenCog's language processing tools in some commercial products. For example, on the back end of a website for language learning, we've, we've used OpenCog's machine learning tool, Moses, to analyze genetics data, to analyze music listening data and marketing data. And that's maybe not the sexiest aspect of OpenCog, but it's, it's been helpful to me because I've been earning a living for a while doing, doing AI consulting projects for various companies and government agencies, and often using OpenCog software components as, as, as tools. Yep. But the other aspect of OpenCog, which is more directly exciting for transhumanists, is our long-term goal is to use OpenCog to make a thinking machine. The grand aspiration is pretty big, and we want it to be the next step beyond human beings. The short-term goal, or perhaps I should say the medium-term goal, is to create a robot toddler, say, an AI with the rough intelligence of a three-year-old child. Yep. And I think if you can get there, then you can get to the end game. I mean, I, I think a three-year-old child has the common sense understanding that an adult human does, basically. And from the point of the three-year-old onward, there's certainly more maturation of the mind that has to go on and a lot more learning. Yep. Basic cognitive mechanisms are, are already there. And so that's, that is our proximal goal with OpenCog, and we have a bunch more work, of course, to get to that point. Right now, we're playing around with the integration of AI with video game characters as a sort of simple prototype for controlling an autonomous, mobile, exploring, learning agent with OpenCog. And we're just getting started with connecting OpenCog to robots. We've begun a collaboration with David Hansen of Hansen Robotics. Yep. And actually, I'm going to bring a Hansen. I'm in the U.S. right now visiting family and for the Global 2045 conference. When I head back to Hong Kong, I'm going to bring a Hanson robot in a suitcase for, for the lab. So we're, we're literally just getting started with the, the Hanson Robotics collaboration. 
Smuggling robots on airplanes. Gotta love it. I'm excited about that, too. Yeah. Um, and I guess maybe in, in layman's-ish terms, it sounds to me as though the the creation of even kind of the toddler-equivalent toddler um, mental state or capacities is obviously a massive, massive, massive leap. Um, you guys have been cracking away at it for quite some time. Um, is it possible to kind of explain what you feel like you need to do in order to, to move forward or, or what elements you guys need to work on in order to kind of close that gap or you know what, what your trajectory is now? Sure. So we are moving forward. I sure. mean, we have a team of six people in Hong Kong working on this, and we just have started a, a new team in, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, with a handful of people. And then there's scattered developers in other parts of the world, in, in, the, U, in the U.S., in Europe, a guy, two guys in Isfahan, in, in Iran, actually. Cool. So I think now... We have a lot of interesting learning and reasoning components within the OpenCog architecture, and they all work together on the same knowledge base, which is called the atom space, which is the, the long-term and short-term memory of OpenCog. But not enough work has been done to get all these parts of the system to work together in a, in a synergetic way for the goal of combining an agent. So that the next challenge we have, really, during the next year, year and a half, is to make OpenCog's various components work effectively as an integrated system for controlling an agent. So right now, the video game character is controlled only by a couple different OpenCog components. But the other components are there in the code base and have been used for other projects. So we need we need to get them all working together yeah. to make the agent smarter and smarter. And that, in a way, it's challenging socially because it means the programmers who wrote the different components have got to understand what, what each other did. Right? Yeah. So we're sort of in a system integration phase, not so much at the code level, but at the fine-tuning of the algorithms level, where each algorithm has got to be fine-tuned to work well with the other with the other ones, and w once we get done with that, then of course we may see that some of the algorithms need some improvement to work well in the context of the overall system. I mean, we we have a high level design for the OpenCog system, which is, I mean, close to a thousand pages, but still, that only scratches the surface. There's more and more and more details. Cause, yeah, you know, building a brain is hard. Look at the text. <laughs> textbook of neuroscience is this thick. And yeah. again, that's only the abstract. we got to dig into the research literature see yep. what's really going on. Then OpenCog is not as complicated as a human brain, but even if it's one-tenth as complicated as a human brain, there's still a hell of a lot going on there. Yeah, it's going to be a, a, lot of, a lot of code, so to speak. So, okay, cool, kind of a system integration. Yeah, I imagine different people are writing different segments that does add an entirely different element of kind of complication in there. Yeah, and some segments are written by people who have moved on to and are not with the project anymore. And you got ah. I mean, it's <laughs> it is a large scale software engineering project as well as a research project, and having those two aspects pursued in parallel on the same code base has a, a variety of challenges associated with it. I mean, think about something like Microsoft Word. I mean, Microsoft has 100 people or something working on that constantly, year after year after year. 
Wow. But that's a tremendously simpler thing than building a thinking machine. So. Yeah, so I guess getting the more people, the better, and I suppose the better the collaboration and more, yeah, more orchestrated. Yeah, you need the right people. You need people who are good programmers and understand AI. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think we... You don't want 500 people on a project like this. It would just be chaos and then confusion. But the point is, it's it's a large project. And one of the issues in the AI field is most work is done in universities by graduate students. So you have the idea that, you know, one, two, or three PhD students working with a professor is going to be able to make profound progress on the AI problem. But I mean, wait a minute, then, then why does it take 100 people to build and update Microsoft Word, right? Yeah, yeah. So, of course, a grad student or a small team thereof could make a conceptual breakthrough. If they, could, they could have an interesting insight that, that will move things forward. But to actually build an AI... Bigger deal. ...large-scale engineering problem along with a collection of interlocking deep research problems. And, and I think maybe the hundred people thing also ties into the whole profit element. Obviously, you guys are leveraging your technologies now in different markets, um, but Microsoft is, you know, they're selling Word however many gajillion times over so they can afford to have a hundred people on it. Maybe that's why, um, you know, a lot of people think Google's going to come through with a lot of breakthroughs because they're able to leverage that technology in a profitable business sense and they've got Kurzweil and all that. Um, do you kind of have an understanding of sort of the direction they're going and how many people they have working together? Or are they in kind of a different domain of AI? Oh, hold up. You broke up a little bit there, uh, there, Ben. Give me a second here. Ben, you're more likely to solve the problem that you're working on rather than something else. Right? So, that's right. Oh, hold up. I think you just, uh, it just got a little bit sketchy in between there. Can you still hear me all right? Can, can you hear me okay now? Yeah, I can hear you decent now. Yep. I think it's when the camera moves around a lot. Skype gets all uh, all discombobulated. Silly old Skype. Anyway. Okay. Yep, a little bit. Hold on. I think it's got a, the camera's trying to settle itself a little bit. Um, let's see. Where are we? All right. Should should be working just fine now. Are, are you still able to hear me okay, Ben? Yeah, I hear you fine. Okay, great. I can hear you fine now too. Anywho, yeah, I was I was uh you you were talking about Google there and how many folks they might have involved and the fact that they're gonna be leveraging it for profit. Um what do you see what, as what I, what I would say is it doesn't matter how much money you have and how many people you have, if you're working on a different problem then you're more likely to solve that different problem. That different problem. And, I mean... A different problem. Right now, Google is not leveraging their massive resources toward the goal of creating human-level thinking machines. I mean, that, that, that's not what their aim is. That's not their aim. 
their aim is, is to make more money through search and through ad placement and so forth. And that's where a lot of their build-a-brain things are sort of going or whatever there? Well, Google doesn't have a large AGI team. They certainly could. I mean, they have a lot of money. I guess they could, smart yeah. People, but that, in fact, is not what they're doing at the present point in time. Even with, even with Ray and stuff, it's really about kind of refining their business model of the search well, and pay-click stuff? Ray was brought in, obviously, in an attempt to stir things up a bit and to, to see what could be done in a more general intelligence sort of, of direction. I, I don't have reason to believe that Ray is controlling a large percentage of their resources at present and my feeling is that what Ray is doing will focus on natural language processing yeah because that's what Google does I mean they're, they're not they're not building robots no not, they're, not they're right now trying to make AI that will leverage their strengths which is a massive database of text and a huge number of computers for analyzing that text yep and so you have, you have a conceptual question there, which is, are you going to get to AGI via analyzing text mm. and looking at patterns in the massive amount of web pages and searches on those web pages and so forth? Or... Do you need an embodied system that is more like a human and can go around in the world trying to achieve its goals and integrating visual and auditory and movement data like a child does? Now, if, if you can get to a human-level thinking machine via text processing or via an approach that is centered on text processing, then I would say... Google, Microsoft, IBM have a mighty good chance of getting there because, you know, they are masters of text processing. They have a lot of text, and they have very powerful computers oriented toward processing text. Now, if text processing is not an adequate approach or not a convenient approach to get to AGI, if you really need embodied learning in a somewhat human-like embodiment in order to get toward a human-like intelligence, in that case, that's just not what these companies are doing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they could do it, of course. They're making self-driving cars, right? So they. Pretty cool. There's no and and God blesses. So there's there's no reason Google couldn't make human-level robots if they wanted to. However. That's not what they're undertaking at, at the moment. I think if you really dig into it, there are other issues that make it tricky for a company like Google. Hmm. I mean, my own view is that building a thinking machine is a highly cross-disciplinary project. I mean, you want to have AI people, you want to have mathematicians, psychologists, philosophers, linguists, you want to have people with many different backgrounds working together. And 
a company like Google basically consists of a lot of really, really good programmers. Now, of course that's the core. You need a lot of really good programmers. But I think you also benefit in this kind of project from more of a diverse intellectual background in, in coming at the problem. And that's possible to do within a company. I don't think that's Google's culture at the moment, just because they're extremely heavily programming focused. Okay, yeah, cool. So, yeah, working on sort of different problems. I guess a lot of folks are probably pondering, you know, what is Ray doing over there anyway? And I guess it's well, tough to... Well, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I pretty much know what Ray is doing over there, but I'm not supposed to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to kill me or something or send robots to kill me? Yeah, but yeah. I... Wouldn't want that to happen. At the early stages of discussing some collaboration between OpenCog and Ray's team, actually, and one of the leading members of Ray's team is someone who used to work for me on in Novamente years ago. So there, 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 there may be a, a connection between my team and Ray's uh, a, a year from now. But I mean, if, if Ray wants the world to know exactly what he's doing, I guess he, he will tell you, he doesn't need me to, but I think it's it's not a direct competitor to what I'm doing in the sense that he's not making intelligent game characters or robots, I mean, what he's doing is is naturally more aligned with Google's core business model, so if, uh, and there's a possible path to AGI that way, right, like let's, let's say Google made a question answering system that answered natural language questions about what happened on the web and held a conversation with you about it. You can envision that getting smarter and smarter. You could. So understood what you were saying. And if if that sort of avenue if that sort of avenue is gonna work, they would be the people to do it. I guess the more I have done concrete work toward AGI, the more I have moved into the embodiment camp. Yeah. I mean, I started out in the late 90s thinking more like, yeah, let's make a human level AGI that just learns everything from the web. And I still don't think that's impossible. But as you get deeper and deeper into actually working on it, you start to see how closely tied human like general intelligence is with the human body. I mean, not that it's a 100% inevitable connection there, but so much of what we do has evolved for controlling the body that if, and processing data that comes in through the body, if you want to make something with a roughly human-like type of intelligence, that's harder to do if it has no body and no vision and no hearing and no touch. And yeah. And if it's not planning and achieving goals in some world with objects and obstacles, now that that's not to say there's not some interesting kind of intelligence that could come out of making a search engine smarter and smarter, though, even if it's not a very human-like kind of intelligence. And then perhaps you can network those two kinds of intelligence together. I mean, the, the smart Google search engine which comes to intelligent conclusions of some sort based on all the data there, with a more human-like, intelligent robot body. 
powered by Opencrog with a Henson Robotics face, but these are all connected to the net by Wi-Fi, right? So there's no reason they couldn't synergize together to form some yet different kind of mind that occupies both Google's search database and a host of different robots of different kinds around the world. I mean, then, then when you get into what other people are working on with brain implants, I mean, the same thing can be what you mentally query for information using your brain implant. So, I mean, I think you could, you could see all these different approaches come together and help accelerate each other. Exactly how long that takes to happen is that five years or 20 years from now, is difficult to say. I'm pretty sure it's not a hundred years from now, though. I mean, I tend to buy the overall Kurzweilian, Vigian timeline that by the middle of this century, humans are not going to be the uh, the sharpest pencils in the pack anymore. <laughs> nice. Sorry, that's more than quotable right there. The sharpest pencils. We will no longer be the sharpest pencils. Um, and on that topic, too, uh, just because I know that how long you've been immersed in this field, AI being a major focus for a long time, as you had mentioned, but um, you've been sort of involved in um, and more than dabbling in, certainly more than dabbling in, a number of other sort of what we call emerging technology or kind of transhuman you know, uh, riding that transhuman line kind of uh, technology projects or related projects. And you had mentioned with OpenCog uh, the goal of kind of being that first step beyond humanity in many regards. Um, and I, and that's, a, that's a big topic that I talk about here on Sentient Potential is with all the various technologies that are uh, in development now, what do you see as sort of the, the, the things that you're keeping your eye on in terms of that initial transition beyond human potential, whether it be biotech, um, gene therapy type things, whether you see it as AI period, a lot of the brain machine interface stuff is getting a little bit more intense these days. W what do you see as kind of the first technologies to potentially cross that line? Well, I think the key is going to be an increase in intelligence. I mean, there are many fantastic technologies out there. I'm really psyched to see what happens with quantum with nanotechnology. I mean, life extension is of, of great personal interest because I don't want to be dead. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting things in development around the world. And the ones that are most likely to make us blast off to the whole new level, these are things that increase the amount of intelligence available. Yep. Because, I mean... One technology, no matter how amazing it is, is not going to do as much as having smarter beings that can invent an endless series of new technologies. And, and that's so, exactly it, yeah. So what do you see as sort of the... Well, the, I mean, you have, a, you have the familiar spectrum of possibilities. On the one hand, you have AGI and a couple of different approaches there, one being a more computer science approach, like I'm taking... One being a more a more brain emulation approach, which I think will become feasible once neuroscience is a bit more advanced. Then, on the other hand, you have brain-computer interfacing and neural enhancement, like put a chip on your brain, yeah. put a USB port in the back of your head to get direct internet access, and, and, and so forth. Now, my personal guess at the moment is that 
we're going to get advanced AI first. Hmm. Not necessarily because it's fundamentally easier, but because experimenting with the human brain is slow and, and painstaking just due to ethical and, and, and safety reasons. But it's always easier to see what's possible than to see exactly how long something will take to come to pass. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, none of us can predict how long it will really be until brain-computer interfacing reaches a certain level or how, how long it will be until, you know, we can effectively query Google by power of thought or invoke a calculator or a statistical analysis program just by thinking. I mean, I don't get the feeling that's just around the corner, but <laughs> there could always be, there could always be a breakthrough, right? I mean, yeah. I do get the feeling that's going to come within within our lifetimes. Um, exactly how soon? Actually, people working in that field would have a better sense than me. I mean, I, I talk to those people, but I'm not doing that work. Yeah. So, the, and that's more the brain machine interface stuff. So, you'd say, in terms of kind of the transition beyond uh, human potential as is, um, the beyond were you know the, the beyond kind of level of intelligence. You, you see the, the initial breakthroughs potentially being a little bit more likely in the world of AGI than in actual brain-machine interface in terms of um, the enhancement of our potential by plugging stuff in. That is my guess. Yep. But, I mean, if I, if I were a billionaire, I would be investing heavily in both of those areas. So, I mean, <laughs> I think those are both things we should be pushing forward with as, as our life extension, nanotechnology quantum computing, I mean, the, the, all these areas are important and all have the potential to work together. I mean, say, an advance in nanotech could give us what we need in order to make brain imaging work better, which would let us build brain-emulating AGIs. An advance in nanotechnology could let us build a better brain-computer interfacing device. So, I mean, I think all these, all these future areas of technology have the potential to to synergize together. I mean, just as we've seen in other areas, look at, say, computers versus machine tools. I mean, better, better computers let us design better machine tools. Yeah, 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 yeah. But better, better machine tools let you build better computers, and you, you always have this kind of synergy by, by means of which different kinds of technologies help to lever each other up progressively. You know, I think... We will see that same sort of thing with a host of these currently futuristic sounding technologies during the next few decades. Yeah, that's the the whole law of accelerating returns in many respects is those cycles that you exactly. pointed out there. Um, the last last couple questions here, one of which, which is uh, out of my own curiosity and something I explore a lot, is we've interviewed uh, people in more of the philosophy domain and also people more in the tech side of stuff is um, assuming kind of the, the relevant increase in human potential, assuming whether it be, you know, this work on exoskeletons and making people stronger or more physically capable, living forever, um, uh, massively more intelligent in so many other respects, you had mentioned more creative. Uh, as we gain these, <coughs> as we gain these abilities, how do you see kind of humanity sort of still living and or working together? 
Um, presumably, it almost seems as if if our intelligence is increasing, that almost uh, allows for kind of more tinkering with consciousness, potentially more domains or reason for conflict, whether it be direct or indirect. And if we all become infinitely more capable at the same time, it almost seems tough that you know the world and or society and or other people would would um, would be able to make it. What what are your kind of thoughts on that in terms of how? Well, I think. Uh... That's an interesting question because your your intuition, as expressed there, is almost opposite of my line of thinking. Interesting. Okay, go ahead. One of the things I've been thinking that would come out of brain-computer interfacing is a kind of, of internet-mediated telepathy, in essence. If I if I put a brain chip in the back of my head, you have one in the back of your head, we could beam our thoughts and feelings to each other directly. So if if you have human beings with their brains networked together like that, that would seem to enable both a level of empathy and, and compassion and understanding beyond what we have now, and also the formation of various group minds, where, say, a software development team, all of them sharing their thoughts and their understanding of the code through the day by direct brain-to-brain -brain interfacing as they work. And in the early stages, before AGIs are much smarter than people, perhaps some early stage AGI programming system networking its brain together with the brains of human programmers as they sit there and type their code. And this, this sort of interfacing could allow us to become closer to each other and closer to our developing intelligent machines. And in a way, going beyond the whole individualistic model of, of the self that, that we have now. Now, of course, what I just described is quite speculative, and we don't know what direction either brain-computer interfacing or AGI is going to go in co concretely, but certainly within the, the collection of potentials, that, that loom as we develop these technologies, there are potential realities in which compassion, togetherness, and collaboration increase a lot. Yeah. Dramatically, rather than rather than decreasing. And and I think yeah, my uh, from my own kind of intuitive perspective, um, I certainly wouldn't be brash enough to to state that my intuition is certainly a negative one. That you know, as we increase our capacities, we'll conflict. Well, so far. So far, I think the impact of computing and communication technology has been more social than people predicted. Like people, a lot of people predicted when you had advanced computers, people would just be seeing their, their computer lost in their own virtual reality and no one would ever talk to each other. There was a lot of science fiction like that. I remember uh, Isaac Asimov had a, had a novel about a robot detective going to a world to solve a crime. And on, on that world, basically, people never talked to each other. They were all sitting in their fancy houses, interfacing with advanced computers and virtual realities. And in fact, virtual reality has been kind of a dud so far. Hmm. Second Life isn't that big. Instead, we have mobile phones, which let us connect with each other and do video conferencing like like we're doing right now. Yeah. And the biggest use of computers for most people is Facebook and Twitter and email and 
mobile phones, which are powerful computers, they used for SMS. So I would say now, in many ways, we're more connected than we used to be. I mean, but the nature of the connection has changed. Yep. But you certainly couldn't make the argument that so far computers have distanced us from each other. They, they've changed the nature of our relationship, but they're intensely social because that's how people are. So my, my best guess is that as we get brain-computer interfacing and AGI, people, by their social nature, are going to find ways to make use of that for more and more intensive social networking of, of, of various kinds rather than to let themselves live in isolated bubbles because that just seems not to be what most people want to do. Now, of course, once you have AGIs that are non-human and massively more intelligent than people, yeah. then you have a whole different ballgame. When you're talking about what people will do with technology, it seems like we have a great urge for more togetherness and, and openness. And really, stuff like Facebook and SMS what they've caused is the, the younger generation to be more and more open and share every nasty little detail of their, of their lives with each other rather than, you know, go into a little bubble and only interact with your, with your computer or whatever, yeah. yeah. I think um, sort of one of, the, one of the things is that that's a... Uh, there are certain constituents of human fulfillment and human nature, I suppose, that you and I are talking about at present, being the social element being a pretty significant one. I suppose the the tinkering with the the potential tinkering with consciousness or tinkering with our very capacities, which is sort of what we're talking on, um, that may potentially allow for if if we can become, let's say, a hundred, a thousand times more intelligent. Who's to say we could we couldn't maybe eliminate negative emotion, let's say, so you talk to guys like David Pierce, or who's to say we couldn't edit which constituents of fulfillment we want to actually affect us, um, be it, you know, maybe maybe we choose not to have the relatedness thing really matter as much, and we want the creativity thing to matter more, or maybe we well, want That's possible. On the other hand, if you look at human history, the process trying to transcend the individual mind and improve oneself has also generally been a social pursuit. I mean, religions tend to occur in groups. I mean, you have group meditation sessions, yep. which is usually a more reliable way to get beyond your individual self into a profound state than meditating on your own. You're meditating in a group with others into the trance state more easily. If you if you look at psychedelics, I mean, most people tend to tend to trip on, on acid in, in groups. You can, of course, go in a room and do it by yourself, but if you're meditating or tripping on acid, you're simply generally more of a chance that you'll kind of go off some weird little corner of a mental direction and not advance. Yeah. People tend to do these things together in a group for a reason. The social element actually helps us overcome the barriers that we place in the way of ourselves and to advance sort of a broader understanding. So again, I would say, if, as long as it's a human-like mind driving things, it seems like it drives itself and truth, but to go beyond the individual mind and 
generally, people tend to find that it's best pursued as a group rather than individually. And I think that is deeply wired into the human mental makeup. I, I don't think you get beyond that until you're totally beyond, beyond the human mind architecture. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Once you're not a human anymore, then almost all bets are off, right? Yeah. Then you're all other domain, which none of us understands very well. And I know uh, Peter Diamandis at the uh, at the event we were just attending there on Saturday had spoke of sort of his uh, conception of what the ultimate um, vision might be or what a more far-off future for transhumanism and human potential might be, which would be kind of that uh, ultimate unity of our consciousnesses and our capacities into kind of uh, almost, almost a, a single entity which would go out and expand as kind of a united front in many regards. And then they had, uh, I forget the name of the, the Swami who was there, um, and he, he spoke more of, you know, at, at this certain level of development, you know, we'll all be able to create our own universes and expand and create and play in as many different universes as we want. So he seemed to kind of keep some level of individualness. You're speaking a lot of uh, the overcoming of the self or the going beyond the self. Are you sort of congenial with Diamandis' uh, kind of inevitable concept of our our merger, not just with machines, but with each other. Well, inevitable is a is a, is pretty, a yeah, pretty strong word. And we don't really <laughs> yeah. know what's going to happen. I mean, one of the one of the things I've been very impressed with throughout my life is how little we know and how ignorant we are and how bad we are at predicting what really will happen in detail. So it's. Hard to say with with certitude, but I certainly I think that that aspect will be there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, certainly individual minds associated with individual bodies, but within their own subjective world, communicating via low bandwidth mechanisms like language. This this will not be the only kind of mind in the future, and it. it very likely will not be the dominant kind of mind in the future because it's just not efficient, if, if nothing else. I mean, yeah. there are problems with the unhappiness and suffering that's caused by the separation of people and our inability to understand and come together with each other as well as we would like. But beyond that, there's just plain informational inefficiency there. I mean, I learned something. I spent a lot of energy and time learning that thing, and I can't transmit it to you, except by taking years and years, right? And yeah. That's a, that's an informational inefficiency, which is is therefore an economic inefficiency, and that that is almost sure to be overcome, just for practical reasons, quite apart from the emotional or, or ethical or aesthetic reasons, which I think are also there. But to what extent individual minds, what we have now, will still exist, it's hard to say. I mean, we, we haven't obsoleted the insects, for example. There are still many insects around, and they have their own part to play. And it might be that human-like minds remain long after this new kind of more distributed network-oriented 
broad-based intelligence also has come into being. Cool, yeah, no, it's an interesting, an interesting way to put it, um, but I'm definitely congenial with the inefficiency aspect um, and how that almost, almost seems like, given where we're going and given that overcoming inefficiency has sort of been a, you know, A or the massive theme of technology that some of that stuff's going to have to go. Um, with that being said, and as, as kind of a wrap-up question, uh, because this is something that fascinates me, uh, you had mentioned kind of having an interdisciplinary approach to your particular project there with OpenCog. Um, as, as people in this domain, in this field, whether philosophers, intellectual contributors, technology folks, um, presumably what we're aiming to do is make kind of this transition to transhumanism, this going beyond human potential, a good thing, right? We're, we're, we're hoping that, you know, we're crossing our little fingers that, hey, we're all working together and we're going to create a better world, not just a better world, but better consciousness, better sentience for, for all of us in the future. Um, what do you think, um, based on kind of working in so many of these various areas of interest and collaborating for so long in this field, what do you think are kind of the core aspects that we as contributors to this domain need to be keeping in mind to ensure that this future is as good a one as it can be? Well, I think the main point we need to keep in mind moving forward is our own ignorance about what the future is going to bring and the need to be open-minded to the various possibilities that might unfold. I think we, we all have a tendency to become attached to our specific ideas of what's going to happen and be that the idea of life extension in the human body, the idea that we'll upload ourselves into robots, the idea that it's going to be a robot or a game character in a body that's intelligent rather than something new. I mean, each of us has research directions that we're pursuing now, and of course it's important at any point in time to pick the direction you think is best and push on with it. But the characteristic of the singularity that makes it the singularity is that things are changing faster and faster, that revolutionary new ideas are coming up faster and faster, and by the same token, old ideas are going to be obsoleted faster and faster. So I think it's a challenge for us as human beings to change and adapt fast enough in our own minds, since we are the ones pushing this forward, the demand on us to change our minds and advance our own understanding more and more rapidly is going to be more dramatic than ever before. There's a saying that science advances one funeral at a time, meaning old scientists never change their minds, they just eventually retire, and the new generation comes along and with a new idea, right? Uh. That's not going to work anymore when science is advancing so rapidly compared to the human lifespan. It means that wow. scientists and technologists and business people actually have to change their mind multiple times during their career, maybe even multiple times each year. And that that's an adaptation to both our individual way of thinking and managing ourselves and our egos and a challenge to our social institutions, which often have a lot of inertia built into them. For example... On the social level, I mean, right now, within academia, it's easier to get a research grant 
you're a variation on something you did before. And if you've gotten research grants in one little area before, it's hard to convince them to give you a grant for something new that you've done, which is totally different. So this kind of institution has inertia built into it. But as the singularity approaches, you know, a change gets faster and faster and more and more profound. Institutions, just like our own individual minds, will have to adapt and revise themselves faster and faster. So I'd say rather than any new idea we need to embrace or get used to, we need to get used to the process of changing and adapting all the time, and not, not just on the surface level, but ultimately on the most profound level of our understanding of who we are, what we are, and, and, and why we are. And some of our thinking about the singularity itself is bound to evolve dramatically as the singularity gets close. I mean, ideas like friendly AI or life extension are not necessarily that well-defined. I mean, what is, what is friendly to humanity? What is humanity? Talk about life extension, what do you mean? Prolonging this exact human body? Prolonging our mind in a related body? What is our mind? What is me? Am I the same as I was 50, well, 45 years ago? Am I the same as I was last night before I went to sleep? Am I the same as I'll be once I pack a bunch of chips in my head? I mean, our way of thinking about these things is going to evolve as, as well. So we'll have to do some, some fancy inner footwork in order to keep up with all the changes we're bringing about. And, and with that being, I, I, I'm also, I agree in that regard. I think that the, 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 the pace will be um, just faster than it's ever been. And then a lot of those philosophical concerns I don't necessarily see being solved like uh, you know, like like simple math problems per se, but I think that does make things interesting, and I don't I don't think it means we can't move um, beyond them. Do Do you think it's important for us to, as we keep our minds open, to because different people are bound to have different ideas as we transition forward to kind of uh, carry that that virtue of empathy sort of in mind as we move forward, as different people have different ideas of what the future needs to be or working on different projects or see the self as meaning different things. Um, how do you see us potentially overcoming kind of some of those philosophical hurdles or, or approach hurdles or maybe some people that do kind of keep their heads in one track like you had explained with scientists? Is it about sort of um, collaborating with each other and, and getting to know each other a little bit better or how do you think we can overcome I think the very nature of philosophy is likely to change. And that's already happened in history. I mean, philosophy and science were kind of the same thing. Even in Newton's day. A couple hundred years ago, right? Yep. And you had natural... Philosophy. The founders of science were natural philosophers. philosophers yeah. and they, would, they would write about the mind and consciousness and the cosmogonic origin of the universe at the same time as they were writing about chemistry experiments they were doing. And now, in the 20th century, these things diverge significantly. You had the emergence of experimental science as a separate discipline, becoming very industrialized, really, and connected with, with engineering, which has been beneficial. Yep. And philosophy became very, very technical and academic, rather than being about individual uh, thinkers like sitting in their study trying to understand the whole universe. Yeah. Some guy trying to solve 
very, very narrow philosophy problem that's almost as narrow as a, a math proof in some little corner of yep. mathematics. And I think that's going to change. I think we're going to see a reconvergence of science and, and philosophy uh -huh. in a way because we're going to be able to do more and more experiments related to things like consciousness and the nature of reality. I mean, when, when you can put a chip in your brain or fuse two brains together in some way and see how it how it impacts the conscious experience of those minds. You know, you're, you're, you're meshing together the philosophical introspective aspect with the scientific, empirical, experimental engineering aspect in a way that, that's not happening now. So we may not solve once and for all these big philosophy problems, but we may get into a, a different rhythm of inquiry in which incremental understanding on these philosophy problems advances alongside and all mixed up with incremental advances on, on the science and and engineering side so that that that, that is my guess of what will happen mm. and and the people working on these far corners of different you know whether it be open cog and other various projects related to the creation of technologies, as you had mentioned, so interdisciplinary, but people working on these emerging technologies that have this potential to move us beyond human potential. Do you believe that on the aggregate, um, collaborating, working together, and knowing what the rest of the world is working on in this in this particular space is is generally a good thing? I know some people are concerned. Oh, what if you know it, you know if we're not connected, we're not going to learn as fast. And then at the same time, if we're not connected, um, then someone could be working on something that maybe isn't so good and we should tell them to, to stop. Um, do you see on the aggregate that, that connectedness being a positive thing for our transition forward? Well, I mean, without it, I don't think we would make the transition forward. I think on, on an individual level, it has pluses and minuses. I mean, I, of course, it's amazing the way we're connected now. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, we can you can talk to researchers all around the world. When someone writes a paper, they can upload the paper and the software code, a video of how they did their experiment. And, of course, in a way, science advances much faster because of that. Now, I'd say there was a very different feeling in the 1980s when I started doing research work where you could, like, you know, you'd sit there for a year in your study and think about some problem in a pioneering way and you were really like a, a lone wolf there on, on your own, exploring some weird corner of the intellectual universe. And there was no opportunity to share your ideas with like-minded people, because if you're working on something weird, there were no like-minded people around. Yeah. Now, that gave you a feeling of loneliness, but it also let you make some kind of profound breakthrough on your own without, without polluting the purity of your thoughts with all this this interaction with the consensus of, of the other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something beautiful in that, which we have lost. On the other hand, losing that seems to be part of the process of, of getting toward the singularity, because, you know, something like AGI or life extension pharmacology, it's not ever going to be built by one guy sitting in his study thinking in, in, in his own direction. Yeah. 
they're big and complicated and messy and necessarily need to be done by by large teams of, of people. Cool. Awesome stuff. Ben, I, I more than appreciate you taking the time to get an interview today. We went off on a lot of tangents, which I'm always happy to do, and uh, I've got a lot of awesome stuff to write on now. So thanks a ton. I'll be looking forward to seeing the progress on OpenCog too, brother. All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.